Hello and welcome to another episode of Live Booleans. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Alex. Alex, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, everyone? Good, good. Uh, so this week we have a very special guest, uh, a guest who has previously worked at uh, VTech, an educational toy uh, company and game manufacturer, Ubisoft Montreal on franchises such as Rainbow Six, Driver, Assassin's Creed, Far Cry, Watch Dogs, at LucasArts on Star Wars 1313 and Star Wars First Assault, and then also at Epic Games as Director of User Experience on Fortnite and many other games. She's an amazing amazing author, publishing award-winning books such as The Gamer's Brain, The Psychology of Video Games, and most recently the book, What UX is Really About, Introducing a Mindset for Great Experiences. Please welcome the amazing and very talented Celia Hoden. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> You're very kind. That's an amazing introduction. Thanks. Um, so something that we always kind of, well, our audience on this show is, is mostly game developers. Um, and some of those game developers don't really know what UX is. Um, oh, or, not just know, game developers. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone. Um, what is it? What is it that UX is, um, and and also how did you get your start in you know in games, but mm-hmm. more specifically you know, UX in games? How, how did that come about? Yeah. Okay. So UX is best seen as a mindset. It's a way of approaching the development process of for any product, so including video games. The idea is to not just think about what we want to design and what we want the game to be. The idea is to. Um, take into account how the players are going to experience the game in the end and to shift from our perspective as developers to adopt the perspective of the user so that we can offer them the experience that we want to offer which means that they're going to have uh, more fun and they're going to have a better experience which means that it's going to result on better sales and, and uh, um, also finding out issues very early so for example um, we don't wait until the game is launched to, you know, try to find out what players understand, don't understand, what they do, don't do, so that we can fix bigger problems um, before it's too late. <laughs> so that's uh, basically what UX is about. We can call that ergonomics. And uh, it uses knowledge from kind of science and specific processes, and it's also applying um, the scientific method. So I have a PhD in psychology. This is how I started <laughs> there. Uh, so I, I, I've learned about the mental processes such as perception, attention, memory that we use as we learn. Um, I specialize in, in learning, but um, it's also applicable to whatever we do in life mm-hmm. when we process information. And uh, after my PhD, I, I always wanted to apply this knowledge to make better games. So mm-hmm. I did not know UX by, back then. And so I started to work on educational games for that reason. I really wanted to make sure the games were both fun and it really educational for kids. And then I transitioned to the game industry because um, the, it, it was back in 2008. Um, I'm French, so I, I was initially hired by Ubisoft uh, HQ in Paris, close to Paris. And they were interested in to, I know, um, enriching people's lives and uh, make sure that we can apply knowledge from neuroscience and kind of science to make better games. And this is how mm-hmm. I transitioned to the game industry. And later, I realized that oh, I do UX. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I do. Yeah, it's always awesome. like that, isn't it? Because um, we had um, someone else in UX from Immutable recently, and 
they did the lateral move as well into UX. I think they started as a barista and they just remembered everyone's coffee oh. orders. And um, then they start. was that it, right, Costa? Jillian, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, and, and um, yeah, working. I think ended up from playtesting and then uh, working into UX, yeah. so facilitating playtest sessions, and then. But that core, that core route where, where you have that psychology background um, and the educational toys, and she had the coffee background. It was like the important factor is the human connection and yep. knowing what people want, basically. Yeah, definitely. I was just going to ask it. Is there that kind of? Uh, rigor that's in psychology do you find that in in games you know you, you take the same approach or is it less of a um less rigorous in that way in ux we do have to have that rigor um mm -hmm. because we have to we have many many biases as humans and mm -hmm. therefore we it's really hard to understand why do we do the things we do how the world works that's the reason why we have to have a very rigorous scientific method uh, mm -hmm. to gather knowledge about the world. Now, applied to developing a product or a game, of course, it's not academic research. Mm -hmm. And so we're not going to spend years trying to figure out stuff. Um, mm -hmm. It's applied kind of science, and we have you know much faster um, turnaround because mm -hmm. we need to ship a product. Um, so we still have strong processes, and we try to be rigorous, but because of a lack of time, we do, quote unquote, good enough science, mm -hmm. uh, good enough to make sure that we're making the right decisions and we're testing. We consider our opinions as hypotheses. We don't rely mm -hmm. on gut feelings. And mm -hmm. so because of that, we do need some rigor. Mm -hmm. um, UX in video games, is that like, would it be fair to say that's probably like the largest amount of testing UX has basically had in like, modern history and like has it refined because of that like because you've got so many people being exposed to products that people make that require that ux that um you've now just got by the billions of testing on you know similar sort of products uh maybe there's some of it um so for a little story ux really uh blossomed uh, during the World War II because mm -hmm. the, this is when people realized that if we just make products, uh, make warplanes in the way that is the easiest for engineers, for example, and the fastest to, to produce, uh, sure, we're gonna put them the planes out and up and flying fast, but if we don't think about how humans are gonna use that plane, it takes mm -hmm tremendous hours of training for the pilots. And even then, pilots were uh, making mistakes because during war, it's extremely stressful. Um, and so they were crushing the planes or damaging the planes just because there were no consistency from one cockpit to the other and other issues like this. Um, and so this is when there's there started to be a shift really to think about, oh, yeah, we save time to make, to, to uh, ship the, the mm -hmm the the plane but at the end of the day it's crashing and so we are losing money and the idea is to make sure that we're going to make a product that's going to be uh, adapted to human consumption because humans have biases and, and uh, flaws instead of asking the humans to adapt to a product mm -hmm. today i think the biggest factor is the f is the is the fact that we have choice in what we buy mm -hmm. we have you know we whatever you want, whether it is a phone or a game, like these are lots of different options for you. 
And so we're a bit more um, less tolerant <laughs> to frustration that we can have, and we're a bit more educated that it's it's not it's it's not our fault if something does not work or if we don't understand something. It's the fault of the design of that system, and yeah, I think that's it's mm. getting a bit more um, popular. And mm. but I would say the main the main factor is the fact that we have more choice. Mm. So. Mm. That's yeah. like a shift in the mindset of, of exactly what you're saying is um, people now won't tolerate when products are bad. Mm. It's not. It's no longer of, oh, well, you need to learn more to, you know, you need to do more to learn about it or you need to read the instructions more. It's just, it should yeah. just work and it should just yeah. be so intuitive that you don't exactly. need to learn a book of instructions to, to operate. Yep. Um, and, and in in games, like UX, I'm, I'm a designer myself, UX designer, and, and game, UX in games has become so popular as of late like i always see jobs pop up and i always see you know it's just it's so much more popular than it was say i don't know in the 90s where you know you had these really basic uh, 2d games and designed by a team of two people and they you know in out so quickly and never an what, artist what always a programmer yeah always a programmer that's right um what do you think it is that uh has made you know ux so um uh, people aware of ux in games and then also what was the kind of state of UX in games when you first started in 2008? Has it changed a lot? Yeah, so first of all, there, there were uh, a bunch of UX trailblazers in the game industry uh, way before mm, <laughs> I mm. arrived. Uh, they were not necessarily recognized, especially, you know, we had we had women out there. Uh, mm. some, someone like Brenda Laurel, for example, I did a lot of work back in the day. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, Maybe, I'm not entirely sure, but the fact that games became online and we have more games as a service and we have way more, and the the business model has changed. Now it's free to play games uh, for in many cases. This is making it even more critical to mm. think about the player experience. Because a player, if you know, if if the marketing is done well and they buy a game, you know, like a box game, and they and they play it and they don't like it and they don't understand how it works and they're not engaged with it, not having fun, um, they've already paid. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, we're lacking on the word of mouth and probably the sales are not going to be great, <clears throat> but at least you know had some people <laughs> who bought it because of a great you know marketing campaign or whatever. Today, it's not mm -hmm. really possible um like for free to play games if people don't like it they don't like it and they're not gonna pay anything in that game uh, and even uh traditional games if you get it on steam you can get a refund if you don't play mm -hmm. it um for uh enough time so there's much more uh constraints i would say on on the on the game developer side that now they cannot really um, get away with UX. They can't really say, "Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's going to be fine." There's mm. really not faking it <laughs> um, much today. So I would say this is probably one of the main reason why we're mm. seeing this. I would say I don't know. Mm. And have you have you sort of seen um, UX change since you first started in the industry versus to what it is now? Yeah. So when I first started um, back in two thousand eight there was no one was talking about UX. Uh, ergonomics were, were a bit talked about. Uh, so thinking about how to make something ergonomics for, for players, 
but that was very uh, French-centered, I would say. Like at uh, Ubisoft, there were some people dedicated to that. There were playtests, um, mm-hmm. so UX tests conducted. Um, we're not calling that user tests. I think we're calling that playtests. So there were some rounds of testing uh, mm-hmm. that were done before the game is shipped in big studios like Ubisoft and Microsoft. Um, but there was no real understanding of what UX is about. We were not using that term. That came mm-hmm. much later in my career. Uh, like the first time I had a UX uh, initials in my title was at LucasArts, and and I did yeah. that myself. I was hired as a game designer. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not a game designer. I'm not even a designer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so every title myself UX lead in. Yeah, so it has evolved a lot. Now people understand better that it's not just about testing. Mm-hmm. It's a philosophy. It's a way to approach a certain development process. Um, mm. We do what we call design thinking. It's, it's about having that uh, process of iteration mm. and we have an iterative cycle. We start by trying to identify what players want and you know what goals they're gonna have in a game. Like for example, if you have a crafting system, what will mm. players want to craft? And this is from this we gonna design. When I say we, I don't mean me because I'm not a designer. <laughs> yes. UX designer are gonna design yeah. a um, a prototype and and mockups to see what would be the best way to ensure that players can accomplish their goals within the system. Mm-hmm. And we immediately test it. We test these prototypes with players, with real players, and that's allowing UX designers to iterate on them and do a few rounds even mm. before we implement and after we implement, we do another few rounds and then we also test once mm-hmm. more systems are implemented and how they interact with one another. So it's it's like a constant cycle mm-hmm. um, of, of iteration and that's a big part of um, the UX methodologies. So there's there are more people with UX in their titles today there's a mm-hmm. better understanding that UX is important, but I'm still seeing a lot of people not understanding what UX is about. Uh, there are still mm-hmm. big myths around re- UX, such as, oh, but you know, this is just going to hamper my creativity, mm-hmm. where we're actually here to ensure that what you have in your creative mind is really what players are going to experience in the end. Um, there's also fears that um, UX is just about dumping down the, the game when no, we just, again, we're <laughs> just going to make sure that whatever you want players to experience is what's going to happen. Now, we will um, hopefully put a, uh, have a push uh, for more accessibility and more inclusion mm-hmm. because that's mm-hmm. part of UX. Um, it, it's really it's really philosophy where we want products and technology and video games to uh, improve people's lives. Um, mm. And so in games, it's the same thing. We want to make sure that like, people are going to have fun. They're going to feel respected. They're going to be safe if they play um, multiplayer, for example. Um, so it's, it's thinking about privacy. It's thinking about accessibility. It's, it's thinking mm. um, ab- about uh, ensuring that there's not going to be disruptive behaviors um, in multiplayer. Make sure mm. like the game is accessible to everyone. Uh, so that that's definitely part of the the process, yeah. but there's still a lot of people not really understanding what UX is about in the end. Yeah, you talk, talking about like inclusivity and accessibility. How how do you find is the best way to uh, embed that into games? Is it is it getting those pe- people from diverse backgrounds and it, getting them involved in the process as it's happening? Is that 
Yeah, it starts there. Well. It starts by hiring yeah. <laughs> people mm. with diverse, uh, mm-hmm. like diverse people, also with mm. diverse background. Uh, it's, it's much better to, for example, have uh, uh, people with disabilities on your game team and people from uh, different horizons, so mm-hmm. that you it's it's um, helping you. Um, and covering your blind spots, so to speak, it's, mm-hmm. it's not a good term, but like we are unaware of many things. And by having more perspectives on the team, this is helping us um, have a better critical thinking about what we do, mm-hmm. find better problems, uh, think outside the box. Um, if those people are really included and not just here for the show, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's there's mm-hmm. a lot of. Uh, um, of this happening too, so that starts there. Mm-hmm. It's all. It also means that you're gonna um, make sure you have a diverse pool of uh, participants and, and uh, users, so players in our case, from mm-hmm. diverse backgrounds and uh, also um, uh, disabled players are gonna play the game and, and mm-hmm. make them part of the process, so that you can ensure that the game is accessible. Mm. And lastly, you can also hire experts. We have game accessibility experts Mm. and they are doing a really important work in the gaming industry today. It's barely starting to be recognized. Mm -hmm. And so all these things are gonna help um, creating a a more accessible game. Mm -hmm. And you know, you talked about bias before. In your time working at different studios, what are some of the you know the different uh, biases that you've seen that game developers have when working on the project, and is it a is it a thing of education, or how do you kind of um, you know navigate through that? Oh boy, there are a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, okay, I'm go- I'm gonna just gonna describe a few. There's the egocentric bias, the the thing that oh I th- I'm sure this is a great idea uh, because I love it people are going to love it um, no not necessarily you're not representative <laughs> of the whole world and not even of your uh, of, of where you live um, you, you're just like a person with some characteristics and you have a, a biased perspective just because we're all biased um, so there's that uh, there's also the curse of knowledge when we build a game or anything we know this game too well and so it's really hard for us to understand um, and to put ourselves in in the shoes of people who are going to discover the game for the first time um what are the other big um there's a lot of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy it's it's Mm -hmm. um logical fallacy when we uh, we have certain beliefs, and we're gonna make decisions based on these beliefs, and there, and this is gonna confirm <laughs> mm-hmm. our our beliefs, even though those beliefs were not true. So it could be, for example, oh yeah, I'm sure that this is a game for a specific um, target audience, let's say young men, and then people think, oh yeah, they like women with big boobs are we gonna add mm. you know over sexualized women with big boobs in, in the game uh, and then they ship the game and they look at who is uh who is playing the game and they found out it's mostly young men and like oh yeah we were right and like no <laughs> the fact is because you made that decision to yes, have over sexualized right. women with big boobs and half naked uh, or if not like nearly totally naked in the mm. game uh, that it's probably so first of all it's not all young men we like that and on top mm. of that 
that's probably going to deter a lot of people, including women. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, this is the reason why you find that not a lot of women are playing your game. So that's a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. We see that a lot. Um, and there's the confirmation bias. Um, we believe in something, and then when we do a test or we look at uh, survey results, um, we're just like looking at how people talk about the game on Twitter or Reddit, and like, oh yeah, this is exactly what I thought, and, and now you're going to take that isolated comment from one person that's not necessarily generalizable to mm -hmm. the broader population who's playing your game, but because this is validating your preconception, you're only going to focus on this. Oh, so mm -hmm. these are a few <laughs> these biases that I uh, that yeah. we all have, and yes, it's an How, education issue. Yeah. Sorry, I was I was trying to answer your second part of yeah. your question. Mm. Um, being more aware of these biases help, but at the end of the day, mm. it's not enough because most of these biases are implicit. Mm. So we have them even though we we know they they are there. It's just like um, perceptive illusions. So when you, when you see some auditive or um, visual illusions, and someone tells you, like for example, like two things are the same color, or this is of the same size, and like oh my god, or how can this be? Even though you understand this is an illusion, you still fall for it. You cannot mm. not see it. Mm. That's the same thing with cognitive biases. We cannot not have them. So understanding mm. them is helping a little bit. But the best way to not fall for them is to have a good process. And that's part of why UX is so important because um, UX researchers, for example, they are more trained in, in, mm -hmm. into understanding these biases because this is exactly why we have science. We have a specific procedures to control for our biases and make sure that what we observe is really what's happening. And is that process, that UX process, is that always, is that different depending on the, um, you know, on scope and timeline, that kind of stuff? Or is it, uh, is there generally, you know, certain principles that um, people can follow that, that can help them with that? Uh, you're, there are generally certain principles. So, like for example, uh, when you're in pre-production, you, you do want to have um, a prototype so that you can make sure that whatever player is going to have to do in the game, you can test that separately. Uh, and then as you um, move forward in the game, this is when you're going to have more like usability tests on, on the game overall. And the more you move forward, you're going to have like longer tests. Uh, so yeah, there, there are some basic guidelines that you can apply for any project. And now, mm -hmm. of course, the bigger the scope and the more systemic <laughs> the game is, the more complex it is. Um, and of course, the more budget the, the studio is is um dedicating to ux methodologies and processes the more the, you know the mm. better we can work and work ahead of the curve and not oftentimes in a lot of studios is, they're just like thinking about ux way too late and like oh yeah, yeah. oh sh shit maybe we should do a play test like yeah like it's you're towards the end of your production this is sure like you should do it but it's late <laughs> we're not yeah, going to be yeah. able to fix really deep problems we're only going to mm. be able to patch things here and there mm. um so yeah what, what what is the uh you mentioned that like what is the trade-off if if you just say for a developer that's listening and they've you know they're in beta or something or they're in you know a later stage of development and they're just realizing oh wow i need a play test i need to do some you know user testing on it what is it that they can actually 
do without almost pulling apart the whole thing and, and redoing it? Um, so the more advanced you are in the game, the less you can change ar mm -hmm. architectural things. Um, so should, you should definitely do it because you might be able to spot some things and um, maybe that could be a case to delay shipping if you see that there is a big issue like price do not understand at all uh, one very important feature in the game there's a lot of things rely on that I've seen games or where um, the game was shipped and and we, we you know you see that players don't understand something and we're like, oh no, they're fine. You know, these are hardcore players. They're gonna figure it out. And then you see that the game is not taking off. And I'm not saying this is necessarily because of that. There's always a lot of factors. It's always really hard to figure stuff out. But if players cannot understand how to be competent in a game, mm -hmm. like competence is one of the key elements of uh, intrinsic motivation for doing anything. So playing mm -hmm. a game is, you know, by definition, you're not forced to play a game uh, unless, you know, maybe, maybe if you're a sports player <laughs> or you play to, uh, to be nice to someone. Yeah. But oftentimes we play just because we want to play. And if in a game we don't understand how to progress in a game, we die and we don't understand why and we play a game and we get slaughtered again, chances are we're never going to want to play that game again. Uh, it's okay to die and to fail in a game. Uh, it's part, you know, of many games are uh, like this. But if you understand why you died and next time you're getting a, a bit better, then it's fine. Then you feel competent. So mm -hmm. if you have a game that is about to ship and you do some testing and you see that for some key parts of the, of the main gameplay loop, like people don't really understand why they die, what they need to do, what's the goal, mm -hmm. it's, I would recommend to actually delay shipping because sometimes it's, it's really hard to recover from that mm -hmm. for sure there's that part in one of uh, the talks you gave there was oh, i can't remember the name of the game you were playing but uh you died 20 times and the thing said contact the level designer because yeah. th they've clearly done a back show uh, yeah it's an old game it's called uh, come for rabbits it was, on, it, uh, yeah. it was on ios uh yeah that was the first time that i really it really made me laugh i really remember that moment very well uh because i'm like oh they're acknowledging the importance yeah. of ux in this um so yeah that was funny because that was back in I want to say 2011, something like that. Oh, wow. Um, so this is really one of the first time that UX was really, it was not, the term UX was not there, but it was <laughs> really yeah. interesting mm. that this was acknowledged. Like if I have a bad experience, even though I paid for the game, I think it was a paid game. I'm not even sure. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I actually liked platforming games back in the day on, on iOS. Mm. And I died 20 times. Like maybe the problem's not me. Maybe there's something yeah. <laughs> wrong with the level design. Are there yeah. other games um, you look to or that you tell um, people, like when you're trying to explain UX, that you're like, this is a game that's done it right. Like this should be like the Bible for UX, you know? Um, not really. And the reason why it's, it's because it's extremely hard to provide a good UX and also because it depends on what experience you want to offer to whom. Mm. And so as an external person looking at, games you know it's it can be difficult to really pinpoint what would be like the perfect game and i don't think that exists however uh i use a ton of examples of various games um, that um, show that illustrate a good ux practice on different parts um so it i, I don't think i could say well this is the game like you just follow everything that they do mm. and, and also because there's no perfect 
UX, we make a lot of compromises depending on our constraints, depending on what we're trying to offer. So, and there's always going to be, it's never going to satisfy everyone either. Uh, so while we, we push for accessibility, um, there's also at some time, you know, we're going to have to make choices. And in many occasions, the choice is going to be a, a, a good um, thing for this a pillar of the game, but it can be a problem in these situations. But you have games that could like really polish the onboarding. I there's um so like Plants vs Zombies is is the first one like the the old one is is a good example for that because it's it's really showing how players learn about the game and it's increasingly getting complex. Um, but as a player, at least I did not feel that I was overwhelmed by all the stuff that I had to learn. So there's there's this, there's, um, um, you have uh, Uncharted, like Naughty Dog, they have the, uh, an interesting process uh, that is called rational level design that is providing some good guidance uh, to uh, pinpoint some issues and then to think about a game in terms of molecules <laughs> uh, and in systems. So that can be uh, very useful. Um, there, you know, there's there's always some some games that are going to be using some interesting things uh, at if interesting points. It's just it's just hard to say. Well, just look at this mm. game. This is like the best yeah. <laughs> in, in anything. It's a random uh, one, but I always figured uh, The Sims probably did it pretty well because it's just gone unchanged for. 20 something years like they that first iteration had the pinwheel where you click on something and all the options pop up and that's still present like that's not so much of the gameplay is I don't know if it's a bad thing that it hasn't evolved a lot but it seemed to make sense at the time and then it's progressed yeah, yeah so funnily enough I don't know too much about The Sims yeah. it's not a game that I was playing when I was younger yeah. uh, and I did not really study it um, that much so I don't know too much about The Sims yeah. I, you know I I've watched people play, of course, but mm. um, yeah. So, so typically, games that are lasting are games that provide a great experience. But it's not because the game provide a great experience. So for example, it can barely be great at um, making pe players feel a sense of competence, autonomy, and relatedness, mm. despite some usability issues, for example. Mm. Uh, and th that's also a fallacy. Um, because some people are going to pinpoint uh, some games that are uh, very popular, um, like let's say Minecraft, um, because it provided something that did not exist uh, that much, uh, and it provides so much autonomy to players, and they can mm -hmm. be creative, they can do whatever they want, it's sandbox, uh, or games like GTA that are really interesting in, in, in terms of player autonomy, despite uh, some usability issues. But the more mm -hmm. you are strong in one of these dimensions to offer players, the more you can get away with usability issues. But it's not a reason <laughs> to use um, these games as you know, telling that, oh yeah, we don't need to think about a better usability or better accessibility because look mm -hmm. at this game, it works. Yeah, but th that's not looking at all the games that have the same sort of mechanics and didn't work, um, hmm. and oftentimes because 
they were not uh, popular uh, or I don't know they were not uh, tra trailblazing for this mm. category and, and this is so that's another bias it's called uh, the survivorship bias we have a tendency to focus on only the things that survive or succeed and we look at okay what is there uh, what is the the recipe of that game or that person or that company mm. so that they succeeded and we like we, we think about certain things but we don't look at all the games and companies and people who failed having the same processes <laughs> mm. um, so yeah, it's it, it can be hard to tell, uh, and yeah, some some games can be. So I'm not saying this is the case for the Sims. I'm just want to make sure <laughs> that clear. Uh, but it's it's we also have to be careful about just looking at a game that's extremely successful to say, oh, this is an example of of good UX process. Yeah. If the game is successful, ob obviously it's providing a good experience to people, um, but it doesn't mean that it cannot be better, and it doesn't mean that another game coming afterwards can also succeed without mm -hmm. uh, addressing the usability issues. Mm. Mm -hmm. So in that vein, I guess kind of yeah. competition in a genre is really good because if you if you because I don't know if there's a lot of like sim clones, but if there were, they would be ironing out over the course of all these releases, finding better ways to do things. But if you own the monopoly on this genre, then you're not gonna, you're like an echo chamber, I guess. You're not gonna develop. Yeah. Well, we, we've seen a lot of clones of games that were highly successful who did not succeed afterwards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and actually, not, this, yeah. this is probably a good segue into uh, Fortnite because mm. there is, I mean, now I've seen so many clones of that kind of uh, gameplay style um, when you when you joined Epic was it where what stage of development was um, Fortnite at was it released yet or no it was really so I joined Epic in 2013 and mm -hmm. Fortnite Save the World uh, came out in 2017 in mm -hmm. July I want to say mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then Battle Royale came out in September and I left Epic in October of that year so I yeah. I, I joined Epic of fairly early, Fortnite was already being developed for a little while. They were tinkering mm -hmm. around with uh, this game for a little while. Uh, but when I joined, it's really when it started to have a, a, a stronger uh, direction mm -hmm. um, and also uh, becoming bigger, not just like a, mm. a, a small game like it was initially announced yeah. uh, <laughs> at the very beginning. You, I think it was in yeah. 2011. So. Yeah. What, what do you think makes it so successful given that even you know now there's still clones of that of the different game modes coming out and it's still so popular yeah so before i reply i'm gonna throw here another bias the hindsight bias in hindsight <laughs> it's always yeah, easier <laughs> to figure out why things are successful or yeah. or not um as we were developing the game i was fairly confident that the game would be successful not as crazy successful as it is, I, no one would have guessed such a thing. Uh, but I was fairly confident that it would be appreciated by players, and we, we would have like an honorable uh, number of, play of uh, players playing, because we did have that that process, um, and we did that for a while, like two years. I think it was two years before Fortnite um, officially came out. Um, uh, yeah, so in uh, July. 2017, like two years before that, we were starting to do online tests. So I don't know if you remember mm. that, <laughs> but mm. 
for again for same the world we had online tests regularly where we we're putting a bill out there uh, that was very early uh, some some um, some points we we didn't even have like um, the saving system that was really um, completely implemented um, and, so, and so we did that super regularly like throwing a bill out there having players play for like a, a few days or a few weeks gathering data sending surveys out asking what they um, mm -hmm. like didn't like understood did not understand uh, and we iterate a lot with that and we were trying to be humble face that you know mm -hmm. uh, and not you know being like it should be that way not the other and that that is part of a ux process and a ux strategy mm -hmm. so i want to say it helped but you know that's <laughs> my yeah. very biased perspective of course <laughs> i'm gonna think that um but i think there's an, another and fortnite is um it's cartoonish it's it's goofy um mm. so even if you die it's it's not a big deal you know it's not like oh you died you suck <laughs> mm, yeah. um so it's like you can start again it's it's uplifting it's funny um mm. so there's that there's also a lot of diversity in the characters um, mm -hmm. that can resonate for uh, a lot of people so there's a lot of things to consider uh, and then there's mm -hmm. also in my opinion just luck mm -hmm. there's totally. some high profile yes. people like football players uh like nhl um and fl sorry <laughs> like uh or uh, um people like drake who started Mm. streaming about on Fortnite and this is like made it super visible to a lot of people mm. immediately so there's always a part of luck mm. in anything that we do and sometimes there's something pick up and you're not sure exactly why mm. so it's a it's a mm. mix of all these things I, I it's it is my opinion that a, yeah. a game UX uh, strategy helped uh, yeah. I want to you know I want to think that way yeah. uh, but then you know there's a lot, a lot of different uh, factors yeah, and I saw um, in one of your GDC talks, I think it was in 2017, around the process going through refining, I think it's the harvesting process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, more mining, mining or harvesting. Um, how, yeah, I mean, how did that come about? Was that through playtest as well? And, and yep. what, what was it that the kind of, you know, the problems that you were trying to solve with that? Uh, and and yep. was the team aware of those problems before you kind of, or, you know, before it was highlighted? Um. So we're, a game team is typically aware of a lot of problems, <laughs> but the mm -hmm. difficulty is to find out what is really critical to solve, because we cannot solve all the UX issues in the game, there's like mm -hmm. hundreds of them. Um, but because we were doing tests regularly, uh, we're looking at you know where people were doing, where they're quitting, or they were actually engaged with the game. And when we were asked certain surveys, at some point, like some players were like, it's it's really too grindy it takes way too much time at some point you know when you reach a certain level so again that was for save the world so the rpg mm -hmm. mode of the game and it was taking forever for them they felt it, it was taking forever for them to harvest to me that's a red flag because harvesting is mm -hmm. is one of the core pillars of the game like it's it's around um um exploring harvesting crafting building and combat these are the main elements in fortnite and, and so this is affecting the feeling of competence on harvesting. And when you look at it, so oftentimes we, the first reflex is like, oh my God, like we need to make it faster. We need to change the system design about it. We have to stop and think and be careful to not uh, rush to solve the wrong problem. And we started, okay, we, we have this problem. 
Now, what are the different hypotheses that can explain this problem? So this is how we work. We start an investigation, we have specific hypotheses. It turns out that we spotted out, uh, we spotted um, um, times before in playtest sessions that players did not understand how to use the weak point in Fortnite. Mm -hmm. So the, the weak point is the little thingy that's popping up in the UI as you start to harvest something that's telling you aim here and you're going to harvest faster because you're hitting the hit mm -hmm. point, the weak point of the of uh, the object. And players were not using it. And of course, at the very beginning, you don't need to harvest a lot of stuff to craft on your own, but after you reach a certain level, you need to find a lot of uh, ingredients. And if you do not understand the weak point in not using it, of course, it's going to take you forever to craft. Um, and so that was one of the hypotheses they don't, to me, it was like they are not aware of it. They don't really notice it. So the artist like changed it and made it more visible, uh, visible and it was still not solving the problem until mm. The game designers thought of removing it from the beginning of the game and adding it as a ability that you unlock in the skill tree, and mm. that made it more. That made players more aware of it. Uh, so we have a tendency to have a big chunk of text explaining what this does. Like most players, most people overall, we don't read, <laughs> but there were yeah. much more stuff around it. You go to the skill tree, you see like an ability tied to your pickaxe, which is the uh, your tool for harvesting, and then you see a little video, and you see on the video a player aiming at the uh, at the little um, thingy there. And after we did that, we had way more people uh, using the weak point. So this is what we do. When we have a problem, we start hypotheses, hypotheses mm. and we start to figure out where it's coming from. Before we do a lot of these tests, especially beta, uh, early beta tests, when we can test with a lot of people, um, or before we can really have long tests with players, so we can really see, because sometimes there are the problem is not in the onboarding, but the problem is later um, mm. in the experience, and you also don't want that to happen. Um, we have a list of issues, and we're not necessarily sure how impactful these issues are going to be on the, on the experience mm. for, for players. Uh, so that's the reason why we have to combine a lot of different entry points and gather a lot of different data to try to clearly understand what are the biggest issues that we need to solve. And this issue was really bad for Save the World, but it's not that bad for um, uh, Battle Royale, because in Battle Royale, you don't really have that R RPG mm. Uh, mm. elements to it. So you, you don't reach you know, a level when you need to mm. harvest more stuff. So even if you don't, of course, it's going to be better if you use the weak points because you're going to be faster. But if you mm. don't realize that this exists, it's not going to have a critically bad impact on your experience. But it does mm -hmm. in the mode Save the World. So sometimes a problem can be really bad in one mode, but not necessarily as bad in another mode. It really depends on how it's impacting the experience uh, for mm. the specific mode. So it's, yeah, it's almost the context in which that feature is being used in. Yeah, there's, there's two words in user experience. The user, who the user is, and who is our target audience, and what experience we want to offer. And for one product, we can have different parts of the experience and mm -hmm. different things that we want to convey, especially in a game when we have different modes mm. um, yeah, and different di dimensions. So these are the and two things that we want to make sure yeah. we cover. And how long did that process take? Because, I mean, it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of moving parts there, but was that Years. a lengthy... Yeah. <laughs> so Years? The yeah. So it's not a part of the process. It's, it is the process, just a way... Yeah 
to approach the process. So it should mm -hmm. happen all throughout the development process. Mm -hmm. uh, for Fortnite, we did these. Uh, so you're, if you're talking just about the online tests, I think it, mm -hmm. it lasted about two years. I don't remember, but mm -hmm. you can f easily find online when the online test started on Fortnite. Um, so yeah, it was it. It took right. a while. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. There's um. There's definitely a question I want to ask, and um, I want to be so careful how, how I word it, because I'm definitely on the uh, game developer, I feel like Costov knows where I'm going, definitely on the game developer side, and um, very inspired by, I think, a blog that you wrote on your website um, recently, and, um, you know, Fortnite's always now the target of, um, oh, my kid's addicted to video games, and yeah. blah, 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 and um, you gave a, uh, I can't remember the title off the top of my head at the moment, um, but... Uh, oh, uh, uh, ethics in the video game like what's yep. the ethical yep. approach basically like what's yep. what, what's on the developer um, as like as a UX developer if anyone gets I guess addicted in, in quotes to a game that's a sign of a job well done isn't it how does that how does the how does it f like, feel like it's to have a so good response. So if you only basically. think about yeah. money, then yeah. yes. If you have a UX <laughs> approach, I would say no. Yeah. Um, so there, there are different things that are mixed here. Uh, so first of all, when we when we talk about addiction, uh, someone is really engaged with the game. It's, it's that's not enough to talk about an, an addiction. Uh, mm -hmm. th there are players that. Um, are suffering from addiction. Uh, it's the idea that you have some craving to keep playing, even though this is clearly affecting negatively your life. So it could be your social mm -hmm. life, it could be your work. Um, and so in many cases, it's not, it's not the case. And uh, a lot of kids, they love to play video games, especially during a pandemic, because this is where their friends are. Um, uh, relatedness is also one of the main pillars in, in intrinsic motivation. And we we need to relate to others, especially during teenage years. Uh, this is really when you you develop a lot um, of this. So this aside, uh, if uh, if we're only talking about yeah, this game is super engaging to the to the point that uh, the kids are spending way too much time, they're not having enough sleep, or they're spending too much money. Then yes, I would say it's an issue in terms of UX um, because this is actually not what you want to do, you want, again, to improve people's lives mm. with uh, technology. Now, this is just really hard to anticipate. I mean, there's, what are the chances for a game to become that successful? Yeah. So this is not necessarily a problem that we think ahead of time, uh, but even so, we see in games a lot of shady practices where mm. it's putting some pressure on the player to come back or to pay which should not be okay. And if we, again, in a UX mindset, we, we're not okay with that. So it's something like, we can say it's okay if, you, if the player comes back every day to get their, um, their daily um, chest, maybe. Okay, let's say that, let's admit like this is okay. Uh, but then if you do not log in every day, uh, if it's not cumulative, then one day you don't log in and the day after you come back and now you lost a bunch of things or you go back down to uh, at the very beginning of the rewards ladder. This is not just rewarding engagements. It's in effect, it's punishing disengagement. Mm -hmm. uh, or if you put a lot of pressure for players to come to an event because it's never going to happen again. It's, it's just like that moment is just a very small window. Um, so sure, 
creating events can be interesting and it's creating a lot of relatedness. People come join together, it can be fun. But now if your event is just happening and like within one hour, one day, it's putting a lot of pressures to people to be there. This is called the fear of missing out. Um, and that's also not okay. Or only uh, using variable rewards um, to engage people with monetization, which is what loot box are about, especially is, is if what you can gain in the loot box is important to win the game or to be more competent in the game, especially if that game is competitive. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of things. It's complicated to navigate ethics in games because games are putting pressure like by definition any game is putting pressure on people mm. to play because you're trying to solve a problem you're trying to defeat an opponent you're trying to coordinate with other people you're trying to be even like games that are more about inner mindfulness it's still putting pressure on you know you want to think about other thing and you have to force yourself to calm down like any games like this they're gonna put some pressure so it's difficult to navigate and that's the reason why we need to think about where is the line. At mm -hmm. one point, it's actually putting too much pressure in what context with what population. Mm -hmm. Because putting pressure on an adult is not as bad as putting pressure on a kid or a teenager. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. this population does not have a mature brain. Uh, especially the, the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that is really regulating our impulses and our you know emotions um so for example time limits you're your own adult you try to you know it, it, it can be a cool fun pressure you can have in a game for a kid it's actually really hard to handle that's why young kids they they throw tantrums and they can cry when they're overwhelmed with emotions that's because the brain is not mature so when your game is played by a lot of young people um, and teenagers, for, for example, it's really important. Um, the, the others, like the relictiveness, is really, really important. So now, if you put pressure on this, these teenagers that they need to have the cool skin, and if they don't have it, they're going to be bullied. Uh, so, of course, all these things you mm. cannot think ahead of time. And I know that like bullies, out of the, it's not the game developer's uh, fault. But if you see that this is happening... And if you mm. all of a sudden you have a, a lot of young players, or if your game is is clearly targeted to young players, we have a moral duty to make sure that mm. these players are going to be safe. So that, this That's, is really bouncing um, back to what I was saying before. In ethics, we mm. care about accessibility, inclusion, and ethics. We want the products to offer uh, to improve people's lives, not making them miserable or not um, making them uh, uh, tied to the game too much in such a way that it's going to impact their lives. Uh, so if there are elements in the game that's actually encouraging people to come back to the point that if they're not coming back, they're going to be punished, then mm. yeah, we need to look mm. into these. You just reminded me, I was curious what you would think of this. Um Oh, sorry, by the way, just for yeah. folks that are interested, I started an initiative with a, a few friends. It's called ethicalgames.org. We're trying to put together a um, code of ethics. It's, it's going to take a while because I, I want it to be evidence-based. So I'm currently um, coordinating with a bunch of academics to make sure that 
anything that we're saying there is backed up with evidence and not just hey mm -hmm. do this just because we say so <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's going to take awesome. years probably but um, mm -hmm. if you're interested there's already some some stuff there yeah i mean imagine uh so we've got a national what would you call it costa igea the the national um it's like the Indi industry games association yeah um game developers yeah yeah and and they've been trying to you know line up develop like local indie developers with that kind of thing australia wide um accessibility yeah more, more so in hiring practices and that sort of stuff as well but yeah definitely trickles down to the development itself and yeah, yeah. so they would definitely be interested so what, what was that website again ethicalgames.org ethicalgames.org yeah cool all right we'll definitely share that on the discord and everything that'd be that'd be great um yeah very curious uh given what you said about if you heard what happened with far cry the latest far cry game i think it was far cry 6 where basically if players weren't logging in they started sending you emails from the bad guy of the game and it was saying um i'm very disappointed in you um <laughs> i have, thank you for leaving this country to me i have now taken over like all this kind of stuff and like it i think i think it's like people are split on whether that was a good idea or a bad idea i think a lot of people saw the meta in it and they're like ah oh, that's funny but then a lot were like I'm being bullied into coming back yeah. or something like that is, yeah. That's a great example. It's actually, um, so in, de in design and, um, and more specifically when we talk about dark patterns, which is a term that was coined by uh, Harry Brignall, who is a UX designer. He has a website called darkpatterns.org, so you can also check that out. It's called guilt tripping. Uh, so it's the same thing if you're not engaging, you receive an email with a character crying, or if you're not buying something, you know, it's crying, or if you're um, uh, unsubscribing to a newsletter, like, oh, we're so sad to see you go. <laughs> um, so it's the same, this is the same practice. Now, again, this is a game and we can justify it somehow because of the narrative behind it mm. but at the same time uh, you know people don't opt in for these mm -hmm. i don't think yeah. there mm. is an opt-in right. thing for getting these emails uh if it was opt-in then okay maybe why not it could it could make sense uh, because it's it serves the narrative of the game so if if a pressure serves really the gameplay like you could say that your character dying like tamagotchi or your crops mm. dying, whatever. It, it's another pressure, like the fear of missing out, or you have to come back, because otherwise you're gonna get mm. punished. But this is the whole point of the game. If you remove mm. that, then you can say, well, there's no point in this game. Uh, so if, if we admit that yeah. this is true, then we can say it serves gameplay. In that sense, it can serve narrative, maybe, but the problem is that people don't opt in. They don't know that this is gonna happen. So, and, and again, for younger, so Far Cry is not targeted to young people, but some people can, can find it quite annoying <laughs> to mm. receive these emails. So if it was, it was a consent, you know, if it was opt-in and people consent to it and was really serving the narrative, maybe. Mm. If this is not the case, then I would say it, it's a shady practice. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Um, but that yeah, wasn't and, the uh, details, like, like, like always. Yeah. It, it was definitely, it was, it was just a... 
It was, um, oh, triggering is not the right word for me, but it definitely awoke something in me because when I was a kid having nightmares about video games because I'd play them so much of not playing them and then not being able to turn off the console. It was that idea of, oh no, it's coming to the real world now. Now they're emailing <laughs> me. Um, yeah. Like, you know, those creepy pastas and stuff where people make horror stories about games contacting you in the real world. It was kind of like, <laughs> it felt like a bit on that. But, um, so just go back to Fortnite um, and you mentioned the... Um, the fear of missing out, um, knowing that you left in 2017, was there like talks back then about these um, events they would hold, like these concerts or uh, Darth Sidious announcing his message to announce episode nine and things like that? Obviously not yeah, that particular. I can't, I can't but, talk yeah. about any of that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so that's okay. Under NDA. That's one of the stuff that's on the NDA, so I can tell you cool. what was happening. Uh, what I can tell you is um, Epic is known for reacting to things very quickly um, mm -hmm. you know like a battle royale there was a blog post by epic so I can talk about this um, ex explaining that it uh, it took like a couple months uh, for epic to put the mode together um, so they they are very reactive uh, to what's going on there's yeah. uh, um, they're fairly well known for that uh, I guess that's the only thing I can say. Yeah, no, that's totally fine. <laughs> that's okay. So it's complicated to navigate these NDAs. Yeah, yeah I bet. Um, one thing I definitely want to cover before we wrap the episode is Star Wars 1313 because mm. I know there's mm. so many fans out there oh. of the game that seen oh, the painful. they've seen the footage, they've seen the you know the leaked gameplay, and they're just so um, uh, interested on it. Um, where where was the game at before? Like when you worked on it, was it? Mm -hmm. At the towards the end of development, no, was it no, no, development? It, it was still very the beginning. So what was shown mm -hmm. at at E3 uh, was um, the vertical slice. There were still a lot of mm -hmm. things to figure out and a lot of things to develop. Um, so it was. I, I really loved that game and I loved the team. Um, I really had a great time at LucasArts. And there's, I'm still following from afar what the, mm -hmm. the my teammates are are doing today. But there was still a long way to go. Uh, so mm -hmm. it required a lot of investment to really ship this game, uh, but the mm -hmm. promise was so cool and it really looked great, and I had a lot of fun uh, mm. participating in this. Um, I hope it would not have been killed, um, but mm. yeah. And and your your work on it was it um, was it at the stage yet of actually doing playtesting, or was it more um, doing? Just the just yeah earlier stage. I'm trying to think. Did we? So we did some internal tests with it. Um, when I started Lucas, so I stayed a, a year and a half at LucasArts because I, I think I joined LucasArts in January 2012, and then the studio closed in April 2013. So I did not have a lot of time wow. <laughs> to implement mm. a lot of things. Uh, I did start some playtesting with outside uh, people, so like real players from the real world. But before that, sometimes we do test internally. It's harder because it's more biased because you know people know more about game design and game development, so it's, it's complicated. But there's still some things that you can test uh, if you ask very precise questions to people. So we did a lot of tests mm -hmm. internally. I'm not, I don't remember if we did already at that stage. We might have done a, f a few test uh, I'm, I, I'm not sure to be honest with you um, but there were a lot of tests internally and, and there was a lot of prototyping um, and that was really really cool because the team was really mm -hmm. interested into prototyping and find you know the, the, the 
do the right things so that the game would be as intuitive as possible and feel. I know that we don't talk a lot about that, but the game feel is really important, um, especially mm. for a game like that. Does it feel good to to play mm -hmm. the game? You know, the shooting, the aiming, the running around. Um, mm -hmm. How does how does that feel? And does that feel good? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And if there was a revival of it, would you be interested in going back to it? <laughs> if, if something, if somehow, you know, the stars aligned in that game, uh, I don't, I don't know. It would depend. It would depend on the team who's taking care of it. I yep. would say that, and mm -hmm. on the leadership, because mm -hmm. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But yeah, if there's a bunch of people from the initial game and and the leadership team seems to be. Um, sane or unhealthy let's say that uh sure why why not it could be it could be fun but i i don't that's not gonna happen yeah yeah sure. and what are you Sadly. working on yeah what are you working on at the moment yeah so today i'm a consultant so ever since i left epic uh, so it's been what five five years nearly five years now <laughs> i've been working independently so I, i i do a lot of consulting work for studios from AAA studios to uh, indie developers and, and so i help them understand what ux is about and help them implement um some uh, good ux practices and also depending on the budget that they have and try to adjust to that um i do a lot of training uh so training mm. teams uh, about what ux is about so that they can be autonomous and you know do mm. that without you know hiring someone if they cannot although it's better to hire some ux people so that uh, mm -hmm. they can guide you from inside and i also sometimes do ux evaluations uh, on a specific game at a specific time um for mm -hmm. developers who um it's it's pretty costly to do ux research i would still This is not replacing UX research, but it can help a little bit to try to identify some of the biggest issues um, and refine your mm -hmm. hypotheses so that when you do a UX test, you can really get the most out of it. Um, so this is basically what I do, and I work on the ethical games uh, thing, and I also work on the implicit bias and inclusion, explain to people mm -hmm. also our biases and how not all it's only not only impacting how we design things but also uh how we discriminate <laughs> against certain people um most often uh marginalized folks so that's part of the things i do and i write books <laughs> you do that's worth mentioning you have you have got a book uh available to for aspiring ux developers mm -hmm. yeah. yeah uh i try, um, I try to Costa's share reading it actually as much as possible what's that Yeah, I think Costa's reading it actually. I saw I saw it yeah, on his I'm desk the other day. <laughs> yeah, I'm reading Gamer's Brain. That's it. Oh, okay. So, really yeah, how do you like it? Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. It's so much detail, and um, I really love how it gets into the yeah into like the the cognitive you know functions of your mm -hmm. brain and that kind of stuff. It's as a game developer, you would never you know you'd never look at that kind of stuff, but it's so important into um, yeah ensuring that your designs are you know are actually working and uh they're actually the player is motivated to do what they what the game designer intends them to do so yeah really really great cool well, i'm i'm happy you like it <laughs> <laughs> um one thing we always like to do before we wrap is uh any advice for say in this context let's say game designers or developers um looking to embed uh ux in their process any advice for them to get started yeah um so i would say it's twofold um 
if you can hire a UX person, uh, because that person, like a real UX person, be careful because now it's, it's getting very trendy and some people who don't necessarily mm-hmm. have the background in human factor psychology or in design thinking process, um, sometimes just add UX because it's, it's trendy. But if you have a real UX person, uh, that's the best thing you can do. Uh, the second best thing you can do is to educate yourself about UX. Um, so that's that's the reason why actually I wrote the the Gamer's Brain. Um, I was mostly thinking about uh, smaller um, studios and indie developers who don't necessarily have the resources um, to do that, so that they can at least get more uh, familiar with all these concepts and. Uh, and think about their craft in a different perspective so that they can, they can hopefully avoid one of the, um, the, the big caveats when you make games. Um, that's, that's a start. Um, it's, it's really hard. I mean, it takes years <laughs> to uh, understand and to learn about uh, human factor psychology and, and, mm-hmm. and to learn about human-computer interaction and what, it, what does that mean for game development. But at least if you learn about the vocabulary and, and you get familiar about the limitation of the brain and you understand that players' mm-hmm. experience is happening in their brain, then this is already helping you to shift and have that mindset that can help you and, and um, find, find the right problems to solve faster and the best mm-hmm. solutions faster. Um, and yeah, hopefully offer a better experience for your, for your players. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, and where can people find your books and, uh, Everywhere. more about you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I don't know. It's, uh, on Amazon, you can easily find them. I've heard that people, depending on uh, what country you live, sometimes have a hard mm-hmm. time getting it, uh, shipped. Um, in that case, you can go on the Rootledge website. M- most of my books are edited at Rootledge or CRC Press. There's, this is just, just the same big group. Um, and I've heard that it is a bit more reliable to get it outside of uh, North America. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you, you'll find it on Amazon cool. or the biggest retailers for books. Yeah. And you're, you're on Twitter as well. Can people follow you? Yeah, they can definitely. I, I love Twitter. <laughs> this, this, I'm very yeah. active on Twitter, <laughs> and I'm silly hooded oh, on awesome. Twitter, like very straightforward. <laughs> so don't hesitate yeah. to put me there. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Celia. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you so much for having me. It's a it's a pleasure. I I hope that uh, I can visit Australia again, Australia, again soon. Uh, <laughs> I miss I miss the folks there. Uh, so I visited in 2018. Uh, yeah, I, I miss y'all. So yeah, I hope that I can definitely. I can come back at some point. <laughs> <laughs>